And here's the funny thing with the whole pumpkin killing thing. You do not have to launch your pumpkin. Okay, you can carve it and stick fire inside of it tomorrow night, whatever you want to do. That's, it's all great. You keep your pumpkin, but we are going to be pumpkin launching. If you, want, you don't have to come to the pumpkin launching, but I want to show you something right now. Look at this. Jason and his gospel community made this thing. It is a, it's pneumatic, and it's just. Okay, also, here's the deal. How much property are we going to? I don't, we're ho- Pete says it's going to be okay, all right? Now, here's, here's the other side of this, all right? Uh, we, we are also, there's safety measures involved, okay? Uh, we're also, when we do the pumpkin launching, we will have some shotguns there, all right? Don't bring your own gun. We will have guns. We don't need everybody showing up like, I've got a sawed-off shotgun. Everybody stand there going, shh, pull! Okay? We, we don't need that at all. Show, we have the guns and the ammo. Just show up and we have a safety place set up. No one's going to get shot. It's all going to be good. We have safety waivers for you to sign Okay, now, now this whole thing with pumpkin killing, we came up with this, like, I don't know, what, March, something like that. And then Ryan, the the guy who leads music, that's just, you don't know him, it's Ryan. And Ryan goes, we should launch those things, too. And we're like, that's a beautiful idea. So so we've just kind of been moving this direction. I was driving down the road. I'm not capping on any other church or anything, but I was driving down the the road, and I'm looking at all these churches, and they're all Harvest Festival. I'm thinking, pumpkin killing. That's, that's, so, yeah. And I, and, I will, and I will tell you something. The, the reason why we don't do a harvest festival or do something on Halloween is because we actually want you guys in your homes handing out candy. If you've got kids, we want you going to your neighbor's houses with your kids trick-or-treating. Because, and I will tell you why. We believe that God has called every single one of us to live on mission for his name. And there is no better way to get to know your neighbors than to go out with your kids. You knock on the door, ding-dong, hello with a smile. You're a stranger and they're glad to see you. The only time it will ever happen in your life. (laughs) Halloween is a great holiday for us to redeem because you get to go out and meet your neighbors. It is a wonderful thing. And if you you don't have kids, don't go around trick-or-treating because it's creepy, but stay, (laughs) stay home and open your door. Let people come over. Get to know your neighbors. This is so important. This, this is what God calls us to do. And you have a perfect holiday to do it. Don't hop in your car and drive your kids to the rich neighborhood to go get the, all the candy. Stay in your home and, and or around your neighborhood and go get candy and do stuff there. Get to know your neighbors. It's very, very important. <sighs> and hand out good candy. Like Jesus would. Man, not Tootsie Rolls. Not candy bars. Okay. I have just offended everybody in the room, so I'm doing good. Uh, the fan is on in the room. Sorry it's hot. I blame it on you. Why don't you stay on me reading to God's word? We'll get started here. This is Psalm chapter 7, verse 17, and it says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. 
Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that we as your people would give the honor due your name to you and that we as your people would understand who we are and who you are so that everything in our lives becomes about your glory and your honor and that your people will be able to live in much joy that you bestow upon us. Amen. Have a seat. So we are doing a short series called The People of Hope Before Christmas because things in our world look Hopeless. Joblessness is up. Government's already stabilized around the world. I, I found this this week that the hottest guy in Hollywood, according to people voting, is this guy right here. Exactly. We got issues because vampires do not sparkle. I don't know who did that. What's up with that? It can be a bit scary at, at times, things going on in our world, but we are called to be a people of hope. Now, I've been trying to get you through this series to get you guys to memorize Romans 12, 12. Hey, it's very easy. Anybody got it yet? What is it? Hold on, hold on. In unison. Bam! If I had Tootsie Rolls, I'd hand them out to you. Because I don't need them. <laughs> you rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. This is what a people of God are supposed to look like. Unfortunately, most time as Christians, we don't live this way because life is hard and we begin to lose hope in who God is. So we're giving you some portraits of people throughout the scriptures of hope. Today we're going to look at value in relation to hope, that we are made in God's image. God has bestowed on his value because we are made in his image, so we should value one another as well. The ability to assign value is one of the most amazing gifts in the world today. It's rare among species on the earth. Like my dog, uh, her, my old dog's name was Zan. Zan only thought food was valuable. Didn't matter what kind of food, there was no distinction, but any food was valuable. My current dog, Haiti, if you ever hang out after this service for a little bit, you'll see her start running through. She's got a ball in her mouth. Okay? Haiti that's not the thing that matters to her. A ball and a frisbee. It doesn't just that's what she loves. She she'll play with any other dog. If there's a ball, she'll start to guard that ball and want to attack another dog that tries and eat that. It's just the ball. We do this as well. Like like hamburgers. Uh, there's a McDonald's burger, there's an Orchid Burger burger, and there's an Applebee's burger. And we pay different prices for each and we think each one is of different value. But we have taken that also and we have started to do that with people. We do this by word and by gesture, who you say hi to, who you don't say hi to, who you embrace, who you avoid. But God says all of us has value because we are made in his image, a gift that has been bestowed upon us. And he gave the life of his son for us as his people, not because we are so good, but because he is so good. And that should bring us some hope. In Psalm 8, 4 and 5, it says, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. This means it is something that God has done. It is based in Christ. So this is not about self-esteem. This is all about Jesus. God has given us glory by creating us in his image. And we, in a word, are then to give honor to each other. When we fail to honor God's image in other people, we subtly start to destroy hope. All of our subcultures have different rules of honor. I mean, junior high boys, it's like, you know, it's who's got the bigger insult, uh, who can beat each other up. The older you get, the more sophisticated these things become, the greater the stakes get played for. Every culture finds ways to value people they treasure and ignore people 
they don't. Uh, as an example of things that we value, uh, somebody somewhere at some point has decided what are etiquette rules for eating meals. Now you go to a formal dinner. How do you, I, I, I don't get it because I don't know why I need two forks. I just need one because I shovel anyway and I hold it like this and that's, that's, that's how I eat. But apparently you need two forks for stuff. So I, I have been to a few formal dinners and I have got judged on my etiquette. So what I'm going to do is give you guys an etiquette quiz real quick. You ready? You all know, I didn't know I was going to quiz in church, but okay, that's good. Whoever loses has to eat Tootsie Roll sets. That works. So, at a formal dinner, when you're seated at the table, your posture should be A, upright wrists on the table, B, twisted toward the host to show them deference, C, hunched over with elbows on the table, D, chair backwards with ball cap covering your head. A. Upright, wrists on the table. Second one, when finished with your meal, your napkin should be folded and placed on your plate. B, set to the left of your plate. C, shoved down your shirt like a bib. D, taken home, washed, and brought back. B, set to the... I know, that's I'm, all, I'm done. Boom, and you throw it on the plate, and you're done. It's all good. No. All right, third one. At a formal dinner, you can begin eating the meal when A, whenever food is placed in front of you, B, when food is close enough to grab, C, after everyone's had a little too much wine, or D, when the host or the chief guest starts to eat. D. Exactly. D. D. And you're also supposed to keep pace with the chief host or whoever that is. Uh, at a formal dinner, if you are still hungry after the main course, do you A, request a second helping, B, say, is this all there is? Yell fire and then start taking food from everybody else's plate when they're distracted. Or D, call Domino's. First service, someone's all, D! I call Domino's. A, you request a second helping, but they do not have to give you one. And that's not a breach of etiquette for them not to give you a second helping. Now, here's one just for fun. Okay, what is the correct response if your cell phone goes off during a church service? A, slide it under the person in front of you and point at them. Shout praise God and amen until it stops ringing. C, act like you don't hear it. D, answer it and say, you're having a baby now? I'll be right there. Do we change it? What is it? That's what you, act like you don't hear it. That's, that's what I do. Mine has gone off before and I'm like, whose phone is that? Is, that's how you do it. Now open your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. There have always been these type of etiquette rules. In Jesus' day, the rules were a little different, but they still had etiquette rules. Luke 7, starting in verse 36, you see a dinner that uh, Jesus gets invited to. And it says, One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So Luke starts the story telling you that Jesus was invited to a meal. A visiting rabbi would be a guest of honor. In today's culture, that means you could only eat when he started to eat. But believe it or not, there are also other rules there as well. Number one, these are the rules that you had in Jesus' day. The customary greeting of a kiss. Okay? Someone would show up, you would kiss them. This is not affection. It's not all creepy like, hey, Jesus. Okay, that's not what that is. It's acknowledgement of arrival. Different levels for different people. If a guest was of equal status with you, you would kiss them on the cheek. If it was a child to a parent or maybe a student to a rabbi, they would kiss them on the hand. Now, have you ever seen any of these movies of Jesus being betrayed by Judas? What do the movies always show him kissing Jesus? On the cheek. And that's wrong because Judas was to kiss Jesus on the hand, which made his betrayal all that worse because it's a profession of loyalty. 
To neglect a kiss was like ignoring someone. I know some of you really want this to come back because you're all touchy-feely, but you're weird, okay? <laughs> you're like, I want to greet somebody with, with a godly kiss. It's like, not me. I'm sorry. I'll greet you with my godly hand. Like, bam, back up. The only person who gets a godly kiss is my wife, and they're all godly. That's how that works. And this would be like if I invited you over for dinner to my house and you knocked on the door and I'm like watching TV. I'm like, yeah, come on in. Food's over there. And I never talk to you. That's what this would be like. To a guest of honor, it's deliberate insult. The second one is the washing of feet. This is what else you would do in this culture. This is mandatory in this culture before a meal. If you are a high status guest, the host would come and wash your feet himself. If you're a lower status guest, they'd have a servant do it. If you're an arrogant or lazy host, you would have the guest wash their own, but you always gave them water for their feet. If you made them wash your own feet, it's very insensitive. It's like, no matter how you feel about, say, President Bush or Obama, if one of them comes to your house and you make them wash their own dishes when they're done, that's what that's like. It's, it's very insensitive. And number three is olive oil for anointing. This is a fragrant oil of some sort. Uh, it's somewhat optional, but with lots of heat and no deodorant in this culture, it's a nice gesture. Hey, we're going to have dinner. How about we don't stink? All right? Mm, it's, uh, that's good. So Jesus arrives at an invitation. Which one of these do you think he receives? None. None of these. He is a renowned teacher. He attracts multitudes. He has an international following. But at this Pharisee's house, he gets no greeting, no water for his feet, no anointing for his head. And these are not things that are easily overlooked. This is deliberate slap in Jesus' face. Everybody else at the party wouldn't know this. Kenneth Bailey in his book, Poet and Peasant, writes this. The insult to Jesus has to be intentional, and it electrifies the assembled guests. War has been declared, and everyone waits to see Jesus' response. So the tension in the room is very thick. What's Jesus going to do? Jesus is intentionally provoked by a religious leader. I mean, this really has no bearing today because one religious person would never provoke another religious person today. Yeah. Okay. Here comes your person of hope for the week. Verse 37. And behold, and the word behold, it's like a term of exclamation. It's like, look. It's like, what's that guy that does the cooking? Bam in the pan. It's bam. Look. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Glad we found her because apparently she's the only one. Uh, literally, she, she means she lived a sinful life. It says, when she heard that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Let me give you some background of this. Banquets in this day, they were public affairs. Anybody could come to the vicinity of the banquet, even if you were not invited. You would hang out in the courtyard and you could watch. This is not today. If you have a party and you're not invited and you show up outside and just kind of look in the windows, hey, what's going on? The <laughs> cops will haul you off, and rightly so. I just wanted to give them a, a Tootsie Roll and a godly kiss. Like, you know, just, you're going. So there, there is this woman present, and she is most likely a prostitute, and she is known as a prostitute. But I think personally, somewhere at some point, she heard Jesus speak. Why do I think that? Because those who heard Jesus and knew him felt compelled to be something more than they were before. Jesus hung out with prostitutes, but he never whores himself out. He hung out, hung out with drunkards, but he never got so, drank so much he couldn't drive his camel home. Jesus hung out with gluttons, but he didn't wear elastic waistband wherever he went. People knew his love and his grace and his righteousness by being around him, and they didn't feel condemned, but they felt called to something greater. You can have your sins forgiven. You are called to something more. You can become what God intends for you to be. 
I think that strikes a chord with this woman. She probably looks at her life and says, how did my life come to this? Because no one thinks they're going to be a prostitute when they grow up. At least nobody I've ever talked to thinks, well, I think when I grow up, I want to be a prostitute. That's, that's my dream. And at some point, she had been somebody's baby. She's been somebody's object of hope. Maybe she was rejected somewhere. Maybe her life got really hard, and now all she can do is this so she can make enough money to eat. One thing is for sure about this woman. She knows what it means to be despised and unwelcome, to have hope torn away from her. She could have even been sold into this by her parents. And if so, then she knows rejection as well. And at this point in her life, no decent person will talk to her. No decent person will welcome her. No decent person will acknowledge her. The only doors that open to her are doors that open at night and in secret. But I think when she hears Jesus, things begin to change because she knows she is loved by God, this God that Jesus talks about. She knows that, that God, she is made in God's image and God then values her. It's not too late for her. There, there is hope. There is hope. And so she hears that, so she hears that Jesus is going to be at this party and she knows that she's not going to be invited. I mean, I don't have any speculation about this, but the only way she would be invited to this Pharisee's house is maybe at night when no one else is, is looking, but she's never going to get a real invitation. So she gathers her courage and she goes to the courtyard. And I think at this point she has faith. She has given herself to Jesus and his teaching and the hope that he has offered. So you got to imagine this. She stands outside and she watches Jesus get dissed by all the religious people. No one greets him with a kiss. No one washes his feet. No one gives him olive oil for anointing. The one who gave her new life and hope is ignored and insulted. And people at the party, they watch. Well, what's Jesus going to do? Is he going to get in a huff and is he going to leave? No. She sees Jesus accept it humbly. Imagine God being treated like I get treated at a formal dinner. That's what's happening to him. No one comes to his side. Nobody stands up for him. And many times it's actually true for us as well. We refuse to acknowledge that we are Christians in front of other people because of what some people have done to the name Christian. Many times we are the ones who defame the name of Jesus. Do you know in the Bible when it says not to use the, the name of the Lord in vain? People go, oh, we, we assume that's like God with the damn followed shortly after it. That's not what it means. What it means is people who claim the name of God, like today, Christian, and actually don't live the way that God calls us to live. We, thank you. We are these people that defame the name of God. Many times our God gets made fun of by us or somebody else is unwelcomed and we just smile and we go along with it. We go, well, what can we do? Well, what can this woman do? She cannot go and she cannot kiss Jesus' cheek. That's against etiquette. I mean, how do people interpret that? She walked in and kissed Jesus on the cheek. Think Jesus doesn't have enough problems already? <laughs> the prostitute, mm, hey, Jesus, like, okay, it's all, it's all over now. But what can she do? She can kiss his feet. That's an utter act of humility. It's a reflection of her hope. I don't know if you can see this drama, right? But Jesus reclines on a cushion. A woman shows up, walks to the party, uninvited. She kneels and kisses his feet so somebody would give him a greeting. And I think she finally, while she's and he's kissing his feet, I think she looks up at Jesus. And I don't think that's something she would normally do as a prostitute because she'd either probably see lust or judgment in men's eyes. She, many times, if she looked up at a guy, she'd probably get beaten for doing so. But she looks up, and I think she sees love in Jesus' eyes. She probably hasn't seen that look in a very long time. She sees it in the best person she has ever known. He loves her in the light, not in the shadows. And I think she starts to cry. This is tears of sadness for her life, tears of gratitude for her forgiveness, tears of joy and hope because now she gets a new life. Now she gets a do-over. And so she wets his feet with her tears. She washes them. 
and the only way to then dry them is with her hair. This, again, is another breach of etiquette for this woman. She lets her hair down in public. Women did not do this. When little Jewish girls were old enough, they would tie their hair up in a bun on the back of their head. On their wedding night, their husband would take it out, and the hair would fall down. That was considered a woman's glory. That's the only time women did that. It was considered too provocative if you did it any other time. This is why we think Katy Perry should wear a sweatshirt half the time, you know, because... Okay, making sure you're still paying attention. If a married woman let her hair down in public, that was grounds for divorce in that culture. And so this woman has let her hair down for many different men. But this time I think she gets it right. One last time, she lets it down, she wipes Jesus' feet with it. And she also has a jar of perfume around her neck. Because in her profession, this is actually kind of important, it's an era not known for hygiene, and the least crude way I can say this is the perfume made her work a little less unpleasant. She empties out this flask on his feet. Now, when we see that, we don't really get the gist of what that looks like. She takes this, and she unstoppers it and pours it on his feet. Have you ever been driving down Broadway? And you're like, driving, you're like, smells like pot. Anybody? Well, how would I know what pot smells like? We know, okay? <laughs> you're driving, you're like, oh, my goodness. And instantly we know. Like, maybe you're, you're hanging out at your, at your house, and one of your neighbors is having a party. You're like, they're smoking pot over there. It's like that smell, right? She unstoppers this thing and pours it on Jesus' feet. And everybody in this room is like, it smells like prostitute. What is it? So anybody who did not know she was a prostitute now knows she is a prostitute. This is the scene that's happening. And what she does, she takes this and she pours it on Jesus' feet, which is great significance because she's not going to need it anymore. She's pouring out her entire old way of life. She has been undone by Jesus' goodness and pours herself out in gratitude and hope. Now, you know this is going to get a reaction because religious people love to react to stuff. Verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The Pharisee thinks to himself, Well, everything that everybody thinks about this Jesus must not actually be true because if he knew who was touching him, you know, he wouldn't be allowing her to touch him. And so, this, I love this. I love what happens because Jesus now tells a little story. And I love how Jesus tells this story knowing what Simon, the, the Pharisee of the party, is thinking without him saying anything. And Jesus just proves he is all that people think he is. Verse 40. And Jesus answering, I love that answering. He didn't say anything out loud. I love that. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, moneylender meant loan at interest. It's like a bookie or a loan shark or like, check into cash, that, that, that thing. It's one's 500 days wages, one is 50 days wages. The only difference in this is the amount that the men owed. So Jesus asks the question that's going to turn Simon's life upside down. Verse 42, now which one of them will love him more? Little debt or big debt? Which one is going to be received with more love and joy and gratitude? Which one has more hope or story? Simon answers, verse 43, the one I suppose, and I love that, I love that, because the answer's not hard, but Simon now sees what's going on. Jesus is going to use him as an object lesson because he's a tool. (laughs) The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt, and he said to him, you have judged rightly. It's like, gee, Simon, you're, you're so smart. See, we think people have a great ability to love and hope have mostly done their lives right. They're healthy people, people with high esteem, people with no regrets. This is what our culture says. It's why we keep dumping all this money into social programs that do not work. 
But Jesus says people who love greatly and those with the most hope are those who have seen great brokenness, those who have seen the bottom and they have been then undone and restored by the grace of God. That is what Jesus says. You've got to visualize this, what happens next in the story. As Jesus turns to the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. He turns and he faces the woman talking to Simon. The, the conversation has been between Simon and Jesus so far. And so Jesus continues to speak to Simon, but he's got his eyes locked on the woman. Now, when a speaker talks, what his eyes are drawn to, most people look at. Like, if you came in here and I was like, you would all go and, and try and see what that was. And so Jesus is looking at this woman, a, a prized possession of God's. Simon doesn't even really see her. But what happens is, is she knows that he's talking to Simon, but the words are actually for her. Everyone in the courtyard is probably now looking at the woman. And Jesus becomes more than her forgiver. He becomes her protector, her advocate, her friend. She came into the house and she was going to greet him and become his champion. Now he becomes hers. Verse 44, then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Simon doesn't. He sees a discard, an object lesson. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. So Jesus did notice the slap in the face. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Jesus is humble. He doesn't say since he was a rabbi, Simon should have washed his feet. He simply says, just a little water, which you have done for the lowliest guest, would have been fine. He says, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. He doesn't say, you should have kissed my hand. He doesn't even mention the cheek of an equal. I think he probably tells the woman, you can stop kissing my feet now. It's okay. He said, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. She poured out the best she had for him, and it cost her her way of life. He says, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, which go back to the story, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. This is why she loves so lavishly. She knows how her hope was gone, and now it's been restored. If you've been forgiven little in your own eyes, you're going to love little. If you've been forgiven much, you're going to love much. And Jesus is not saying, Simon, you're a righteous man. You've sinned just a little bit. It's that Simon perceives himself to have only sinned a little bit. Simon thinks God is getting a good deal with him. He thinks, I'm a small debtor. If more people could just be like me, it'd be so much better in this world. Simon thinks he himself is the hope as the religious Pharisee. But he is a debtor. His sin has separated him from God, from life, and other people. His self-righteousness has caused others around him to lose hope. And this is so like us, because we are just like Simon. And we want to look around and think, our sin is not as bad as it is. I talk to a lot of people. If this resembles you, good. All right. I talk to a lot of people. Like I'm, I'm talking to a, a guy a mouse while ago, and he says, well, you know, uh, I look at porn, but at least I don't go to the strip clubs. And I'm talking to the guy who goes to strip clubs. He says, well, I'll go to the strip clubs, but at least I'm not fooling around with my girlfriend on the weekend. And I fool around his girlfriend on the weekend and says, well, at least I'm not shacking up. And someone's shacking up, well, at least I'm not getting a divorce. I'm getting a divorce and they're like, at least I don't beat my wife. You know, I, I, we, we try to make our sins so small, and yet there are huge debts. I will tell you this. I've been married 19 years. I have never cheated on my wife. I'm a pastor in a church. I own my own small business on the side. And I can react and live just like Simon. I judge people. I think people are worth less than God sees in them. I do that. This is the beauty of Christianity. We all suck. Every single one of us. And yet Jesus loves us and restores us 
to who he wants us to be. That is our great hope. See, there is sin in this room, but it's not the way we think. It's, it's lips that won't kiss Jesus in the proper place. This is exactly like us. Where would you kiss Jesus? Most people say, oh, I'd kiss Jesus on the feet. Bull. No, you wouldn't. When it comes down to what God calls us to do and what we want to do, we're like, I'm going to do what I want to do. That means you wouldn't kiss Jesus on the cheek as an equal because you think you're better than him. Didn't think this is where this was going, did you? We have knees that won't bend. The woman comes in, she surrenders her life to Jesus. We don't bow our knees to Jesus half the time in our life. We have eyes that won't weep over our sin, and our sin is awful. Do you think your sin's no big deal? It's a big deal. Jesus had to die to take care of it. We have hands that won't serve. We think everybody around us is to serve us and take care of us. And we have this perfume that's our entire old life that will not leave the jar. We refuse to trust God with our life. These are all indications of a soul that will not love God and will never know true hope. Jesus says to Simon, Simon, you have the biggest debt of all. If you would see it, you would fall down broken right next to this woman as well. See, he and the prostitute are both big debtors. And God longs to forgive them both, to love them both, to restore and bring both of them hope. See, she needs grace for her broken heart. Simon needs grace for his hard heart. See, who's the big debtor? It's us. It's us. And yet Jesus comes and he spreads his arm. He says, I love you. I want to restore hope. I want to redeem you. He says it to tax collectors and unfaithful friends and prostitutes and thieves on a cross. He even says it to Simon. And he says it to you and I every day. You know, in Jewish society, Jesus is not even supposed to let this woman touch him. By doing so, he actually becomes unclean by their laws. He is now regarded as defiled. This is why Simon said, if he knew who was touching him. But Jesus, Jesus is willing to take on the pain of her sin and humiliation for her. His reputation is damaged, and he gets mocked, but he is willing. He wants to do this just to bring her hope and new life. And he offers this to you and I as well. This is one of the reasons why so many people point to God and they say, Oh, well, God's a crutch. God is defamed because of how he deems to save us. He takes broken people and reaches them and takes them and restores them. And it causes the rest of the world to go, oh, God's a crutch. Because the people who are too proud to leave at him think they're doing everything right. It's the broken. It's the broken. This is verse 48. This is what he says. He addresses the woman, and he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I think she's known a lot of emotions in her life, probably hate and anger and rage and shame and loneliness, but she's probably never known peace like this. Kenneth Bailey writes this, In effect, Jesus says, Go in peace that all these people judging you and condemning you cannot touch. Hold your head up. Don't walk out of here as despised and clean things, shamed by their self-righteousness. Walk out of here as a daughter of the king. That is the power of love and hope. And that is what God has given to us as well. You see, the ability to assign value is one of the rarest gifts in the world. God values above all his glory. But he also values people that are made in his image. And he offers repentance and hope. We must be a people who value what God values because we have been forgiven much. We need to start acting like it. We need to start acting like it, to treat others like it because in so doing, we offer the hope that Jesus offered. But we must value God above all. 
because it is about His glory and you and I seeing ourselves as we really are. This is, this is not uh, condemnation and shame. This is understanding who we are, God's forgiveness of us, and then the turning around and walking into the life that He calls us to walk. Godly sorrow brings no regret. And we move forward into who He calls us to be. That is the beauty of the gospel. The band's going to come up. And as they do, they're going to sing a couple songs. And I'm going to give you guys a moment while they sing those couple songs to ask God to reveal to you His heart for you and how He has redeemed and loved you to offer you much hope. We're going to uh, offer you guys communion where you take that cracker, which represents Christ's body that was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice, representing His blood that was shed for you and I, so we can be a people of great hope. There'll be some deacons and elders in the back, and if you need prayer for anything, maybe you feel like this woman, and you need restoration. Jesus longs to restore you. You Go and pray with Him. If you have never met Jesus, ah, no better day than today. Because when you do, you will understand who He calls you to be, and that it is all about Him. They're offering boxes on the side of one on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is simply part of our worship. So we give that opportunity every week. And I don't know if there's any food in the back. Is there food in the back? Cookies. There's some cookies in the back? Well, I don't really care about that. What I want you guys to do, 2 o'clock today, come to the pumpkin carving. We, we have pumpkin pie and, and the godly creation of Cool Whip. All right? <laughs> Paul in the back's all, praise Jesus. Okay. So, and we want you guys to come, car puns, get to know each other. Because, again, we want to be the people who, who throw a party not like Simon, but a party where someone walks in and they are welcomed and they are loved. This is one of the reasons why we get together and do things like this. God calls us people to learn how to party and have joy together. So we do that with you as well. So this morning, guys, Surrender all to Jesus Christ is because he longs to walk you in the place of hope and new life because we have been forgiven much. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who forgives us the way that you do and calls us home the way that you do. And I ask that we would begin to see ourselves as we really are and see you as you really are that we are a people that you have crowned with glory and honor and love and hope, but it's not because we are so good. It is because you are so good. And you are the God who is deemed to give us restoration and hope. Father, have us live in such a way that we can take all the mistakes of the lives of our lives that we have made and we can lay them at your feet and humbly weep, but also get up and walk into new life, like you called the woman to in the story, to live the new life that you called her to. Have us live and walk in that new life, doing all that we do to bring you great glory and great honor, so that we as your people live and walk in great joy, knowing you as our great and good God who has loved us much. Amen.